Jeff mentioned, I'm Sam. If you don't know me, I'm the pastoral assistant here at the church, and so I'm preaching this morning uh, as Nick is away. And I want to begin with a uh, couple questions, rhetorical questions. Have you ever been angry with someone? Maybe a more helpful question for our time this morning is, has have you ever had someone angry with you? Can you relate with me to the sense and the feeling of having someone angry at you? Maybe it's for something that you did. Maybe it's for something you didn't do. But someone is angry with you. Now, it might depend on your personality and uh, who this person is. But... At some level, I hope that we can all empathize with this undesirable feeling of someone else's wrath and anger, as well as the feeling of relief that comes when that person is no longer angry with us. It's not pleasant to have someone angry with you. And so hold on to that feeling, that sense this morning for a little bit. What does it feel like to have someone angry with you? And what does it feel like when that person relents? And with those feelings in mind, I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to the book of Isaiah. We will be looking at chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And I have entitled the sermon this morning, no longer angry. And the key words for our worshipers in training are day, salvation, and Lord. Isaiah 12 is a song of praise to God for the salvation that he has brought about in his people. It begins with this statement in verse 1, you will say in that day. And then there is the content of what will be said. And then again in verse 4 we read, and you will say in that day. And there's further words to be spoken. And so that phrase, in that day, just to go ahead and lay the outline for us, will serve as our outline. We will consider in verses 1 through 3, Salvation as, you will see, as a, an individual matter. And secondly, we will see salvation as a corporate matter in verses 4 through 6. Uh, maybe a better way to label these two sections, verses 1 through 3, God is my salvation. Verses 4 through 6, God is your salvation. And again, forewarning, we will spend most of the time in verse 1, so don't get really nervous uh, when we take a long time in verse 1 and we still have five verses to go. Most of the time will be verse 1. And before we get to the content of the song then, I want to make a few comments regarding 
what he says here. You will say in that day, what is the day that Isaiah is talking about? In what day shall Isaiah's audience say the words that he says they're going to say? Well, context is helpful. So we need to consider that. Grammatically speaking, and this is something more easily seen in the original Hebrew language, but I think we get glimpses of it even in the English. Grammatically speaking, chapter 12 of Isaiah, verse 1, is a continuation of a flow of thought that began in chapter 10, verse 33. Um, it's basically the indention of the paragraph starts at 10.33. And it continues on through all of chapter 12. But this section, 10.33 through 12.6, is a part of a larger section, theologically and historically speaking. Isaiah 10 concludes a section of prophecy of the coming invasion on Jerusalem by the Assyrian army. And then of the Assyrian army's eventual demise and downfall. And so if you look back in Isaiah chapter 9, we, verse 8, he said, we read, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And from there, through uh, Isaiah ten thirty two, we read of, of judgment. And especially ten, when we get to chapter 10, verse 11, it's the judgment on Israel. And in chapter 10, verse 5, we read that it is Assyria that will be the rod of the anger of God. The staff in their hands is my fury, says the Lord. God is sending the Assyrian army against Jerusalem. Well, he was. And then he will accomplish his work, he says, in verse 12 of chapter 10, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He will finish his rage, but then he will turn and punish the speech of the arrogant king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And then from verses 13 through 19, we read of the destruction, God's judgment on Assyria, In verses 20 through 23 of chapter 10, we read of a remnant from the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, after it had been divided after Solomon in the reign of King Jeroboam. This this remnant of Israel, the northern kingdom, will survive, but barely, the utter destruction that comes at the hands of the Assyrians when the Assyrians conquer the capital city of Israel in the year 722 B.C. So, 700 years Almost before the birth of Christ, this destruction occurs. And it was about 20 years prior to the actual uh, carrying away of the Israelites by the Assyrians that Isaiah makes this prophecy. Then we read in verses 24 through 27 of chapter 10 that the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, will there will be a remnant, but not just a remnant, but that they need not fear the Assyrian, for they will be delivered from his hand. Although the northern kingdom, by and large, will not be delivered. 
Now, verses 28 through 32, quick disclaimer, they are confusing. A lot of different possible interpretations, I think, of, of who the he is in verse 28. Could be, some have said the Lord, some have said the Assyrian army. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure. So I'm not dying on this hill, but this is what I think. This is what I, the conclusion that I've come to. Verses 28 through 32, while enigmatic and perplexing, seem to describe the Assyrian army marching toward Jerusalem and then halting at the town of Nob just outside of Jerusalem to kind of the north East. And here the king will proudly shake his fist at the people of Jerusalem, mocking, threatening them before he destroys them. But yet God has promised that Jerusalem need not fear the Assyrians. He will deliver them out of their hands, he says. But here they come, marching ever closer. One commentator, Edward Young, describes this tense situation of this march of the Assyrian army this way. With the Assyrian army essentially parked right outside the city gates, he says this, Will the blow fall? Will Assyria reach Jerusalem in surprise and destroy her? We are ready to hear of her victorious attack. But Isaiah interrupts our expectations. Verses 33 and 34. Look, the Lord, the Sovereign One, is again before us. He will act. Immediately following these mocking gestures from the king of Assyria, we read in verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And so here we see the Lord described as a mighty forester before the wild forests of the Assyrian army. He cuts down this foe before his people are utterly destroyed. This here is uh, perhaps a poetic, you could call it, depiction of the fall, the the beginning of the downfall of Assyria. And then in Isaiah 37, we read of a historical account. The uh, Assyrians are there mocking Israel, mocking Jerusalem, Judah. God cannot save you from my hand, he says. But then in one night the Lord strikes down 185,000 Assyrians while they slept and then they tuck tail and run. And then once at home, the Assyrian king is conspired against and assassinated. Now it's still 100 years or so from that point when the Assyrian nation comes to its ultimate downfall, but this is its beginning. But the question still remains, what of God's people? Because we're not talking about the Assyrians this morning. We're talking about the Lord's people. God has promised not to utterly forsake his people. But Israel, the northern kingdom, has been carried off into captivity. And Judah has suffered the threats and the waging of war by the Assyrian army, even though they have not been completely destroyed. 
And yet we know later that in 586 B.C., they're carried off into exile by Babylon. The Assyrian forest may be decimated, but the tree of the house of David, though it has been felled, unlike the Assyrians, this tree has not been utterly destroyed. We read in verse 1 of chapter 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is King David's father. In this branch shall bear fruit. And we read that the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him, and he will be wise, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and with equity for the meek of the earth he will decide. He shall destroy the wicked with the breath of his mouth. He shall establish righteousness in the earth, and there shall be peace, and the knowledge of God shall fill the earth. As the waters cover the sea, verse 9. And so this stump, this shoot, hang on to this description of him. We will return to it. In verses 10 through 16, we read that in the day, in the day, verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse will have arisen. And in that day, the root of Jesse will be a signal for all peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, he will call his people from all over the world. He will call them from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. On that day, he will be a signal for the nations and assemble together the banished of Israel. He will gather the dispersed of Judah. He will bring Jews and Gentiles together from the coastlands, making a highway back to God from Assyria, verse 16. And so chapter 12 then, verse 1. Let us unpack this message. God is my salvation first. God is your salvation Second, first, God is my salvation. As we've said, in the day in which the branch of Jesse brings God's people back to him, they will, what does it say in verse 1, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Why are they giving thanks to God? Now that is, should be an obvious question. The answer should be obvious to that question at this point. But don't think its importance can be overstressed. Why is there this giving of thanks to God here in this passage? This remnant gives thanks to him. Why? Because you were angry with me, but now your anger has turned away. The Lord was angry with his people, but now no longer. And so to understand the significance of the relenting of the anger of God, let us answer two questions. Why was God angry with them? And two, how is it that he could no longer be angry with them? First, why was God angry with them? We've, we've sort of hinted at this uh, along the way, but the short answer is they have sinned against God. But this is nothing new. 
In Genesis 1-3, through we read that God created man, Adam and Eve, upright and blameless. And yet, through the tempting of the serpent and the desire of their own hearts, they are led astray and they sin against God. They rebel against His law. They seek to be their own rulers rather than submit to God's law. Adam, as the representative of mankind, as we read in Romans 5, brings the curse of God not only upon himself but upon all his posterity. All that shall be born after him. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we read of this principle of sin. We see it play out. God's people, despite his graciousness to them, rebel against him. God's word against Judah here is a word of judgment. And we read from 9-8 on, but really it begins in the beginning of the book. Chapters 1 through 10 of Isaiah, essentially the theme is judgment. In Isaiah 1, the first couple of verses we read from the Lord, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. We could go on, but it would, I promise, just depress us mightily. On and on, the Lord brings this charge against His people. And then, as we said, chapter 10, He says, I am bringing the Assyrian army against this evil. He's using this evil pagan nation to judge Israel for its wickedness. God was angry at His people because of their rebellion against Him as their covenant Lord. And likewise, He is angry against every person who is ever born because of the exact same thing. Before we understand anything of the good that is in chapter 12, we must know this. Before anything in chapter 12 can be yours, this must be yours, that God is angry at sinners. Do you know that in yourself, in your own right, God is angry at you? Have you at some point in your life come to understand that because of your sin against God, God is angry? Can you say with the remnant of Israel, you were angry with me? You must know and believe and feel the anger of God at sin. And not sin generally, but your sin. At our sin. Sin is an offense against the very core of God's being. Everything that God is and everything at His disposal is in opposition to sin. Listen to Isaiah's moment of realization 
in Isaiah 6, verse 5, he says, After seeing this vision of the Lord, high and lifted up, proclaimed as holy by the seraphim, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you had your realization that you're not right with God by your own doing? I pray that each of you have, that each of us have. But notice, this is not the point of the praising. Lest we linger too long here on the anger of God, the point is that you were angry with me. Past tense, but your anger turned away. So while it is of utmost importance that every single one of us in here knows that God hates sin and that he will punish the guilty, of which all of us in our own right stand as guilty, condemned before God, there is none who seeks after God, none who does good. There's more to the story. And thank God that there's more to the story. But it brings up a problem. I am a sinful, wicked man, and God was angry at me. But he isn't angry at me anymore. But Isaiah sees the Lord as holy, holy, holy. How can a holy, angry God become a holy loving God, or a holy, no longer angry at me, God. How is that possible? How is justice not broken if sinners are forgiven? Well, that leads us to our second question under this first point. If God is angry, how is it that he's no longer angry? Well, remember Chapter 12 comes in the context of chapter 11. From the ashes of a nearly vanquished Jerusalem, there shall arise a shoot. A shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father. Who then is this shoot? That shall arise and do something about the anger and wrath of God toward mankind. I'm guessing you know where this is headed. But I want to notice a few things. Other than just saying, Jesus, I want to show you here from Isaiah. This is... This is cool, I think. So, watch this. While there's much more that we can say, much more that we could show from this... From Isaiah, I want to show how it's possible that this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this little plant that will grow up, how he can placate God's anger. And so let's return to our description in our minds of the righteous branch. 
Back at 11, 2 through 5, we read, The Spirit of the Lord shall be upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of knowledge. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye see or decide disputes by what his ear hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then in, uh, in we read that uh, in 10 through 12, he will be this righteous branch ruling the earth will be a signal for the nations. So a righteous branch as a signal for the nations. This shoot anointed by God, bringing peace and righteousness into the world, signal for the nations. Okay, watch this. It's amazing. Isaiah 42. Flip there, if you would, please. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. We won't read them in their entirety. But notice, Behold, my servant... So we have a servant here. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then more description, but then in verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. So the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42 is a spirit-anointed bringer of justice to the nations. And in verse 4, I skipped it, but... Verse 4 at the end, the coastlands wait for his law. The shoot brings the people back from the coastlands, and he is a light for the nation. So I hope that you see the shoot of Jesse in Isaiah 11 is the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42. Anointed by the Spirit, a bringer of righteousness, bringer of the people from the coastlands, and a light and a signal for the nations. But that still doesn't answer the question, how do we turn this? doesn't answer the question, how is God no longer angry? Let's make one more turn to complete the picture. Isaiah 52. Here we're in the context. So Isaiah 1 through 39 is judgment. Isaiah 40 through 66 Restoration, basically. And here we are continuing this theme of restoration from judgment. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, the Lord says, my servant. So who are we talking about? The servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. Now what shall he do? I want to read... Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. It's a little lengthy, but we must hear this. What shall this servant do? He shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. 
As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered him, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How is it then that the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 52, the shoot from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11, 53, 42, and 11. How shall he bring about a day in which the people of the Lord may say to the Lord, I lift my hands to you, O Lord, for you were angry with me, but no longer. You have comforted me. He does it through suffering. This servant, this exalted one, shall suffer immensely on behalf of the people of God, Isaiah says. Isaiah prophesies 
He will be despised and rejected, acquainted with grief. He will bear the sorrows of his people. He will be smitten by God. He will be pierced for transgressions. He will be forsaken and oppressed. The Lord will put him to grief. But this is not in vain. It is here that his soul makes an offering for sin. It is here that he shall see his offspring. His days shall be prolonged. Death shall not have dominion over him. Through anguish he will be satisfied, for by his knowledge shall the righteous one, the servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Because he bears their iniquities. So how does God pardon the guilty sinners of Jerusalem? And how does he pardon us? It is through the death of and suffering of his servant, the stump of Jesse. This, my friends, is the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter describes in his section in chapter 2, he, he commends his readers to be subject to authority. He says, Verse 21 of chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For we, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He references Isaiah 53 in connection with Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, we read of Philip coming across this Ethiopian eunuch who is reading a scroll but doesn't understand the point. And so he reads... Guess what? Isaiah 53, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. This is Acts 8.32, quoting Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Both of these passages, two of, of several that actually quote from Isaiah 53 are significant, and I, I read them to you because it is the shoot of Jesse's stump that brings forth not just the lost sheep of Israel, but brings back the nations. Peter, writing to a largely Jewish audience, references Isaiah 53, you were like sheep going astray. Philip, though speaking to an Ethiopian eunuch, I don't know if you know where Ethiopia is, but it's not Israel. He tells him, Isaiah 53 is for you, my friend. Jesus suffered for you. Gentile. Jews and Gentiles alike, alike may say, through faith in Jesus Christ, 
God, you were once angry with me, but not anymore. Okay, that took a while, I promise. We're f- we are going to fly just a few minutes, the rest of Isaiah 12. What then is the conclusion, the, the implication of this n- no longer angry God at you? Verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become salvation for me. If you have felt the anger of God resting upon you, can you say that God has become salvation for you? Will you trust in him and not be afraid? God is holy, holy, holy. But because of Jesus Christ, you have been made If you are in Jesus Christ, you have been made perfectly acceptable in his sight. This is what we've been driving at all morning. Is God your salvation? If not, I pray that you would turn to him right now. This great God invites you into his fellowship. Right now, he offers himself to you. Will you take him? Will you have him? In verse 3, if God is your salvation, you will draw water joyfully from the wells of salvation. God is an endless fount of refreshing, life-giving water. He will never run dry. He will never disappoint. For the one who has had the anger of the Lord turned away from him, he is refreshed as by streams of water in a dry and weary land. One translation of Verse 3 I came across says this, as, wa- as fresh water brings joy to the thirsty, so God's people rejoice when he saves them. It's not very literal, but it preserves the, the meaning and it brings great imagery. God is a fountain of life to those who trust him. Okay, God is your salvation. God is my salvation. Point one, point two, God is your salvation. Verses four through six. We read this familiar word. In that day, Isaiah says, you will say, the people of God will say, not just I give thanks to the Lord, but what? You will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that he, his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord. For he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The one whose life has been found in Christ cannot be silent. We must tell others what God has done for us. He has acted graciously. He has acted gloriously. He has saved us. Let us tell the world. We read Isaiah 52 earlier, but we didn't read verse 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul picks that passage up in Romans 10. He says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how will they call if they haven't believed? How will they believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear if someone isn't preaching? And how will someone preach if no one sends him? How beautiful are the feet on the mountain 
How beautiful the mountain are the feet of those who preach the good news. So church, we must go. We must send. Let us love the dying world around us. Let us tell of the love of God who sent his son into the world so that we might not perish. Let's tell those in our community. Wonderful opportunity next weekend at Oktoberfest to come and to meet our neighbors, to tell them what God has done for them, to tell them what God has done for you. And we need to tell the world. So in conclusion, four statements of application. First, note the messianic nature of the book of Isaiah. It's Old Testament. But so, and so often we, we're faced with the temptation to reject it because it's big and long and scary and old. But it's about Jesus Not just Isaiah, but the whole Old Testament. The entire Bible is about Jesus. While there is no doubt, further and new revelation that comes in the New Testament, the Old Testament is no less about Jesus. Find him there. Love him there. Get to know him there. Second, God is angry at sin. And again, I plead with you, if you are committed to a life of sin and rebellion against God, He is angry at you. Will you repent? Will you turn and trust in him? I pray that you will. Third, if you are in Christ this morning, if you are trusting in the stump of Jesse, the servant of the Lord, God is no longer angry at you. Period. Paragraph. Think of, again, of that feeling when someone's angry at you. How much more so should that feeling weigh upon you if the God of the universe is angry at you? And then the feeling of when your friend, perhaps, or family member isn't angry any longer, that feels great. What about when God is no longer angry at you? His wrath has abated. He desires to comfort you. God is your salvation. He is yours. Seek your all in Him. For in doing so, you will joyfully ever draw life-giving streams from him, your well of salvation. And lastly then, if God has become salvation for you, tell someone. I'm not saying that we're all supposed to be evangelists going out in the streets, proclaiming the gospel of God, debating with antagonistic people at, uh, on the street corner or at the abortion mill. I'm saying, make known his deeds for you. What has God done for you? Can you bear witness to that? Can you tell someone what God Almighty has done for you? Tell others that his name is exalted. Sing praise to God, for great in our midst, Ephesus Church is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you, O Lord, that you, though you were angry with your people, you no longer are. You are no longer angry. Help us, O Lord, to tell others of this great and glorious truth because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.